We're continuing with chapter 8, section 1 of the Confession tonight. Um, we started our consideration of uh, Christ and his threefold office of mediator. Um, last time we considered Jesus as prophet, and so tonight we're going to consider him as priest and when we finally get to it, uh, we will consider Jesus as king, but tonight we're considering him as priest. So I'm going to start off uh, like I normally do and read the section uh, of the confession that we're looking at. So this is, again, chapter 8, section 1 of the confession, and it says, God was pleased in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them, to be the mediator between God and humanity. God chose him to be prophet, priest, and king, and to be head and savior of the church, the heir of all things and judge of the world. From all eternity, God gave to the Son a people to be his offspring. In time, these people would be redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified by him. Louis Burkhoff explains the difference between the offices of prophet and priest. And I wanted to mention this because we've already covered Christ as prophet. And since we're going to do Christ as priest, I just thought it might be helpful to see what's the difference. Burkhoff says, quote, The Bible makes a broad but important distinction between a prophet and a priest. Both received their appointment from God, but the prophet was appointed to be God's representative <coughs> with the people to be his messenger, and to interpret his will. He was primarily a religious teacher. The priest, on the other hand, was man's representative with God. He had the special privilege of approach to God and of speaking and acting in behalf of the people. It is true that the priests were also teachers during the old dispensation, but their teaching differed from that of the prophets. While the latter emphasized the moral and spiritual duties, responsibilities, and privileges, the former stressed the ritual observances involved in the proper approach to God, end quote. So the idea, um, remember a mediator is a go-between, and Christ is serving as our go-between, between, between uh, God and us, right? And so with a prophet, you have Christ as prophet, representing God to us. But Christ as priest is representing us to God. See how both of these offices are mediatorial. All right, so Christ as priest. A.A. A. Hodge defines the term priest for us. He says, quote, A priest is A, one taken from among men, B, to appear in the presence of God and to treat in behalf of men, and C, in order thereto to make propitiation and intercession. End quote. Again, a priest must be a man, and he must be taken from among men for the purpose of appearing in the presence of God on their behalf to make atonement for them. So first, he must be taken from among men. We talked about this in reference to Christ as prophet, that he had to become a man to serve as God's prophet. Well, the same applies in his mediatorial office of priest. He had to be 
one of us to represent us. Um, he had to appear in the presence of God and to treat in behalf of men as a man. In order thereto to make propitiation and intercession, this passage shows that Christ fulfills all three of these definitional components for a priest. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 10. While you're turning there, I'll, I'll just say, really, if we wanted to take the time to do it, and I'm not, don't worry, I'm not going to, but if we wanted to take the time to do it, as we consider Christ as priest, we could just read the entire book of Hebrews. It's one of the main points of the book. Um, but we're not going to do that. We're just going to look at several, several passages from it. So this is the first one showing that Christ fulfills these three essential components from Hodge. So Hebrews chapter 5, and again verses 1 through 10, says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. Okay, so the function of a priest, so far we see high priest chosen from among men, chosen by God from among men to relate to God on behalf of the people. But then it goes on to talk about Christ as the superior high priest. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Hyde's lists these qualifications for the priesthood. First, a priest must be a man chosen to represent certain people before God. Okay, you might want to just hold your place in Hebrews because we're going to keep coming back to Hebrews. But first, on this point, let's look in John uh, chapter 10. Um, so John chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 11 and then skip down to 14 through 18 and then skip down to 26 through 28. So John 10, starting in verse 11, this is Jesus speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now skip down to verse 14. Jesus is still speaking. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, 
one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And then skip down to verse 26. It says, But you do not believe, he's talking to his Jewish opponents now, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, he must be a man chosen to represent certain men before God. That sounds to me like he represents certain men before God. God chose him for this. He specifically represents his sheep. And then he says to these people who are not his sheep explicitly, you are not my sheep and therefore I don't lay my life down for you. You can't hear, you can't understand, you are not of my flock. Uh, And even though I'm kind of getting ahead of myself by pointing this out, he makes sacrifice, he makes atonement by laying down his own life for these sheep. All right, still on this same point that he must be a man chosen to represent certain men before God, go back to Hebrews now, this time chapter 2. And we'll be looking at verses 14 through 18. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Okay, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That's a specific group of people that he helps. It's not all men, it's the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, so there you have pretty explicitly stated what Hodge is saying in Scripture now. Um, Still in Hebrews, go forward to chapter 4 in verses uh, 14 through 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Again, he had to be a man to fulfill this role of high priest. And I hope you're seeing several reasons why that is. Now, the next point that Hodge makes, the priest must be chosen by God. 
So on this one, uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 through 26. Alright, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, talking about God the Father, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So there again explicitly stated God put forward Jesus uh, as a sacrifice to make us right with him. Uh, This one's probably one that a lot of you know possibly by heart. Second uh, Corinthians five twenty one. Second Corinthians chapter five verse twenty one says, "For our sake, a specific group of people, our, for our sake, He God the Father made Him Jesus." to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So again, we see the Father is the one choosing the Son for this work. And then again, I know we just read it, but I'm going to reread this. Um, Hebrews 5, and then this time just verses 5 and 6. So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then a priest must be holy and consecrated to the Lord. So then again, John, hold your place in Hebrews. Uh, John chapter 17, often called the high priestly prayer of Christ. John chapter 17. Verse uh, 19. So again, this is Jesus praying to the Father right before offering the sacrifice. The work of a priest. He says, and for their sake, talking about his people, for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And then Hebrews chapter 7, verses It says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Talking about the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. But he, Christ, holds his priesthood 
permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son, or consecrates, sets apart, a son who has been made perfect forever. All right, and then the next thing that Hodge mentions, the high priest must have a right, a right to draw near and to bring near to God. So we're just going to stick in Hebrews for this one. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on behalf, on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then Hebrews 8, verses 1 through 6. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. He has a right to draw near to God. And then finally, Hodge says that a high priest must have and offer an acceptable sacrifice. And I've got several passages on this one. So first, let's look at Romans 8, verse 34. Romans 8, 34. Who is to condemn? That is, to condemn God's elect. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Ephesians 5, 2. Ephesians 5.2, it says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay, back to Hebrews chapter 9 this time. And this will be verses 24 through 28. 
So Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 24 through 28. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own, for then he would have uh, had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. A once-for-all sacrifice. It must be an acceptable sacrifice. I think that passage shows that Christ gave the most acceptable sacrifice because he only had to offer it once, and it was done. Um, let's also look at 1 Peter chapter 2. And this will be uh, verses 24 and 25. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. I also think that this passage affirms particular atonement. So he's a high priest for a particular people that like we were talking about earlier. I think that passage covers this as well. Um, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's talking to the church. That's not a general, he bore the sins of all humanity. No, he bore your sins. The sins of his people. Okay, uh, one more uh, passage on this point of Christ offering an acceptable sacrifice. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So you could be sitting there going, Hang on a minute. You've been saying... It was just for a particular people, and now we just read it's for the whole world. What gives? Okay, fair point. The whole world there is a reference to the inclusion of the Gentiles. Not only us Jews. He's saying Christ didn't just die for the Jews. He died for the Gentiles or the whole world. That's not every single human being that ever existed without any sort of exclusion. That is just simply meaning Jew and Gentile. That's all it means. So it actually does not contradict, even though I could see if you didn't know the context that this letter was written in, where you might get that. 
All right, uh, I'm going to pause right here. Does anybody, that's, that was a lot of information that we just went over. Does anybody have anything they want to add or question or maybe offer an objection to? Okay. All right, Burkhoff, commenting on the uniqueness of Christ's priesthood, states this, quote, The striking thing in the scriptural representations of the priestly work of Christ is that Christ appears in them as both priest and sacrifice. This is in perfect harmony with reality as we see it in Christ. In the Old Testament, the two were necessarily separate, and insofar these types were imperfect. The priestly work of Christ is most clearly represented in the epistle to the Hebrews where the mediator is described as our only real, eternal, and perfect high priest appointed by God who takes our place vicariously and by his self-sacrifice obtains a real and perfect redemption. The symbol of the brazen uh, serpent is significant. As the brazen serpent was not itself poisonous, but yet represented the embodiment of sin, so Christ, the sinless one, was made sin for us. As the lifting up of the serpent signified the removal of the plague, so the lifting up of Christ on the cross affected the removal of sin. And as a believing look at the serpent brought healing, so faith in Christ heals to the saving of the soul. The Lord plainly tells us that his sufferings were vicarious. End quote. And, um, of course, there's a scriptural reference there in John 3, and I, I do want us to go look at that real quick, uh, quickly. John 3. So Jesus himself made this analogy to the brazen serpent uh, and himself. But John 3, picking up in verse 14. Jesus is speaking. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Christ's sacrifice is vicarious. He takes our sin upon himself as our high priest, transfers those sins to himself because he offers himself. So he's both priest and sacrifice. Certainly unique. That did not exist in the Old Testament system. Nor could it. That's why he had to be human, and that's why he had to be human without sin. All right, anything on that point? All right. 
So this may end up being a rel relatively short lesson. Um, I believe the Puritan writer John Owen um, puts all this in proper perspective, and this is how I intend to close the lesson unless somebody has something they want to attach at the end of this. I encourage that. <laughs> um, John Owen said this, and pardon the extended quote, but it is. His, talking about Christ, his obedience was not for himself but for us. We were obliged to obey and could not. He was not obliged to obey but by a free act of his own will did. God gave him this honor that he should obey for the whole church so that by his obedience many should be made righteous. The reason why I say that God gave him this honor and glory is because his obedience was to stand instead of our obedience in the matter of justification. His obedience, being absolutely perfect, revealed the holiness of God in the law. The Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone were glorious, but how much more glorious they became when written in the hearts of believers. But only in the holiness and obedience of Christ was this full glory seen. And this obedience is no small part of His glory. Through His human nature, the glory of God's holiness was fully revealed by His perfect obedience. Furthermore, Christ was perfectly obedient in the face of all difficulties and oppositions. Although he had no sin in him to hinder his obedience as we have, yet outwardly he was confronted with much that would turn him from the path of obedience. Temptations, sufferings, reproaches, and contradictions were all hurled at him. So though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. But the glory of his obedience becomes more wonderful when we realize who he was who thus obeyed God. He was none other than the Son of God made man. He who was in heaven above all, Lord of all, lived in the world, having no earthly glory or reputation, obliged to obey the whole law of God perfectly. He to whom prayer was made prayed himself night and day. He whom all the angels of heaven and all creatures worshipped fulfilled all the duties which the worship of God required. He who was Lord and master of the house became the lowliest servant in the house, performing all menial duties. He that made all men in whose hand they are all as clay is in the hand of the potter, observed among them the strictest rules of justice in giving to everyone his due, and out of love giving good things to the undeserving. This is what makes the obedience of Christ so mysterious and glorious. The glory of Christ is also to be seen in his sufferings. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory, ask the risen Lord? But how can we begin to think of the suffering of Christ? We might see him under the weight of God's wrath and the curse of the law, taking upon himself and on his whole soul the utmost that God had ever threatened to sin or sinners. We might see him in his agony and bloody sweat, in his strong cries and supplications when he was sorrowful unto death and filled with horror at the sight of those things which were coming upon him, the dreadful trial he was about to enter. We might see him wrestling with all the powers of darkness, the rage and madness of men, and suffering all this in his soul, his body, his name, his reputation, his goods, and his life. Some of these sufferings were inflicted directly by God. 
Others came from devils and wicked men, acting according to the determined counsel of God. We might see him praying, weeping, crying out, bleeding, dying, making his soul an offering for sin. Lord, what is man that you are so mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? Who has known your mind, or who has been your counselor? Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. What shall we say to these things? That God did not spare his son, but gave him up to death and all the sufferings associated with that death for such poor lost sinners. That for our sakes, the eternal son of God should submit himself to all that our sinful natures were liable to and our sin deserved that we might be delivered. How glorious the Lord Jesus Christ is in the eyes of believers. I can't talk that. Anybody got anything they want to add? All right. Well, then, we'll go ahead and close early with a prayer. And Lord willing, whether it's next week or the week after or whenever it is, um, We'll cover Christ as King next time. Let's pray. Father in heaven above, we are eternally grateful for the high priest that you've given us. Um, One who took our sins and transferred them not to some sort of animal for an outward cleansing, but rather transferred them to himself so that we could be saved to the uttermost. Father, we are, again, eternally grateful for that. And um, we pray that you would help us to live the way that he saved us to live. Help us to live righteous lives, obedient lives, lives that glorify God. We trust you for this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.